the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado. And once again, I am filling in for Pastor Ron, who normally hosts this show. This radio show is a live show for you to call in to have your Bible questions answered, questions about the Word, how to put it into practice in your life, questions about Jesus and doctrine, church life, anything that we can do here to help you to really fall in love with Him. So that's the whole purpose of this show. Uh, you can continue to keep Pastor Ron in your prayers. Uh, he is on the way to getting better, but still needs more time. So in the meantime, I am here to continue with the show. The phone numbers, if you want to call in, are is 210-340-9585, 210 There's also a toll-free number. 877-630-5757, 877-630-5757. The email address, if you want to submit questions that way, super easy. Questions at calvarysa.com. Questions, that's plural, at calvarysa.com. We have the church app, the Calvary Chapel of San Antonio app. It allows you to submit questions that way if you want to do so. That's easier. Uh, You can also use the KSLR app. Uh, If you want to listen in while you're driving, there's a call now button at the top. It's super easy to call in. So you can do that. Well, there you go. There's the phone lines. And let's go right to the phone lines here. We have Alan in San Antonio. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ken. This is Alan. How are you? Alan, it's good to hear your voice. God bless you. Thanks for praying for me. And uh, I got out of the hospital a week ago, and I have uh, eight stents now. And so wow, trying to recover from that. But I appreciate all your prayers. I spoke to someone at Calvary uh, who told me you all were praying for me. So Absolutely. I thank you for, for this. I saw Tom the other day with the update. So I'm glad to hear your voice, Alan. Um, yes, and... I have a question that may not be, if, if you don't know it, it's okay, but I'm trying to find large print Bibles in Spanish. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, giant print to teach uh, yes. the old, old people because they need for their eyes, because they need the large print. And I was. Hey, I have a giant print there. Bible. <laughs> yes, no. So you, you're looking for giant print Bibles in Spanish? Yes. Yes, and I don't know where to, I've been looking on the internet to get those, and uh, are so far unsuccessful. Well, we have a Spanish ministry here. I'll go and ask Pastor Ed. We have from time to time people that drop off Bibles, and a giant print is one of those uh, that uh, people are usually looking for. I'll tell you what, Alan. Uh, I I have your number. I will contact you. I'll check tomorrow and find out if we have anything, and then I'll let you know. Okay. 
God bless you. Uh, thank you so much, and I'm praying for you and Pastor Ron and your families. Thank you, Alan. It really is good to hear your voice. Thank you so much for the update, and praise God that the surgery went well. So, God bless you, Alan. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> what a blessing. What a great way to start off the show. Alan is somebody that has been through so much, and uh, when you know, when you talk to him in person, there is a just an unshakable joy. His body going through so much, yet he is always ministering to people. I love, I love to watch Jesus do that in the hearts of men and women. Thank you, Alan. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and go right into our questions. We do have some that have been submitted. Uh, one that is from our email inbox. I'll get this one first. This one says, Hi, Pastor Ron. I have been going back and forth about an important choice. I want to be sure to follow God's direction on this. I want to ask God for a sign that is that this is the right choice. Any advice, knowing without a doubt, God's answer. Um, and it's from Anonymous. Anonymous, uh, I can help. Uh, you don't need a sign. I know. I know why we do this. And this is something that Christians often pray for, a sign for validation. But we don't need that. And sometimes Christians will reference, you know, in the book of Judges, there is a man named Gideon who does that exact same thing. He uses his fleece as a sign. And after God had already spoken to him, he still persists in asking for a sign and what we need to remember is this, Anonymous, that what Gideon did by asking for a sign, he did in weak faith. Asking for a sign isn't something we do that requires great faith. It's actually something that is done in the weakness of our faith. So what do we do then, Anonymous? Well, whenever we are faced with major decisions in life, we do what we always do, which is we seek the Lord. We stay in his word and we make sure there isn't anything in our lives that is hindering us from hearing from him. Sometimes I understand that there are more important uh, decisions than others to make. And God understands this, but what he wants more than anything is, is for our hearts to be in a place to where he can speak to us and we can hear from him. And remember this too, Anonymous, if you're a born-again believer, it sounds like you are, but if you are a born-again believer, God is not so concerned with you making the right choice. If you make a choice that is different than what he had planned, well, because your heart is right, you'll be in a place where he can sort of course correct you and get you back on track. So you don't have to be right every single time. Your heart needs to be right. And so whatever this important choice is in your life, don't put too much pressure on yourself to make sure that you get it right. Make sure your heart is right, Anonymous. And then God will speak to you. And that's the, the simplest way I can put it. Don't look for a sign. Don't follow Gideon's example. But instead, stay in the Word of God. Constantly seek the Lord's heart in prayer, and He'll speak to you. So, Anonymous, thank you for your question. Let's go right back to the phone lines. We have Anonymous from Kyle, Texas. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, Anonymous. I yes, sir. Okay. I can. Okay, I, I've turned off, I've turned off the radio so I wouldn't have all the Perfect. background noise. And I I would just like to ask um, something and then let you go and and maybe Absolutely. listen to your advice. Absolutely, sir. I I am a married woman. My my husband is he has a real problem with alcoholism. He recognizes it and he is in. A rehab facility, a long-term 
this is going to be a long-term rehab facility that he is in. Um, okay. Like going to a, um, you know, a sober, just step-down kind of program where he'll eventually be in a, a sober living. And I am so proud of him, and I miss him so much. But I have cheated. And my question okay. is, I, I've been, I'm praying for my for forgiveness and understanding. But my question is, um, and I keep asking God this, should I tell him or should I hmm. never do this again, which I have no intention of doing and not hurt him with the knowledge of what I have done? Great question, Anonymous, and I thank you for your honesty and your transparency. I can help you. Let me give you the short answer. You need to tell him. You need to tell him. And and this is the reason why. Because if God is doing a work in your husband's life with his problem with drinking, and it sounds like he's improving, if God is working through that, then keeping a lie from him and that's what it is. It's a lie if you don't tell him. Keeping that, it prevents God from doing what he wants to do in your marriage. It will be difficult, but this is where you really need to trust the Lord. Now, Anonymous, I'm going to assume that you are a born-again Christian. Is that correct? Okay. Okay, since you are a born-again Christian, that means the Spirit of God lives in you, and when we sin, uh, there is forgiveness for our sin. And so if your heart is truly repented and you've come to Jesus with a truly contrite heart, then Jesus says your sin is forgiven. But there are now consequences that we'll deal with. But the good news is anonymous. Jesus will hold your hand through each one of these consequences, but you can't avoid them. To hide the lie and to keep the truth from your husband allows the devil the opportunity to do further damage in your marriage. And so you want to always speak the truth and you always want to be completely honest. And and so your question about should you tell him yes and uh, and you should stop whatever it is you're doing and make sure you don't do that at, a, at all anymore. You have no ties to whatever it is allowed you to go and commit adultery but your husband needs to know that you you are truly repentant and your heart is fully submitted to the Lord and then the Lord can begin to do the work that he wants to do in both of your hearts my heart goes out to you anonymous again I appreciate your transparency but uh, you know what the right thing is to do and don't be afraid Jesus will be with you your heart is right with the Lord now own your sin and be completely honest with your husband. Then and only then can the Lord begin to do the the work of restoration he wants to do in your marriage. I hope that helps. (sighs) Heavy things, heavy things. We'll be praying for you, Anonymous, and if there's anything we can do to help, um, give us a call here at the church. Oh, let's go back to questions that were submitted to the radio show. Let's see. I think there was one more here. Uh, Nope, I don't have it. Okay. Sorry, I thought I had another one. Let's go to ones that were submitted. Another one here is from Abigail. Abigail says, Hi, Pastor Ken. How were people saved before Jesus died on the cross? Was it by works, since the law was the covenant then? Abigail, the answer to your question is, people who were alive before the cross are saved, were saved, the same way people who are alive after the cross. And what I mean by that is, it's through faith in God. Now, the difference, though, is obvious that those who were alive before the cross, that would include uh, Abraham, 
people who died or people who were alive before the cross. Like Abraham, Genesis chapter 15 tells us that Abraham, before the law, away before the cross, Abraham believed God at his word, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, at the end, I think it's at the end of verse 6. But this righteousness is the righteousness that only comes from God. And God imputes that righteousness in the same way 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Jesus imputes his righteousness to us through faith in him when we're born again. So even if those who were alive prior to the cross did not have the same, uh, would not have the same born again type of experience because, well, Jesus wasn't alive yet. It was still through faith in God, believing him at his word, just like Abraham. And he was the one credited with the righteousness of God. Great question. So it wasn't by works. It was by faith. Thanks for your question, Abigail. Next one is from Anonymous. How can we trust the Bible if it is written by man? What does it mean that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Uh, Anonymous, the answer um, is given to us in the scriptures. And, and this isn't circular reasoning. This is what the Word of God says, how we know we can trust it. Because when Paul wrote to Timothy, he was writing to a young pastor uh, to give him foundational truths that he needed to lean upon as he would pastor his church. And there in his second letter, Paul would write to Timothy at the end of the third chapter that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And the idea here, the word here for God-breathed literally is inspired. It is God-breathed. It was breathed from the very nostrils of God. And he doesn't have nostrils, but that's the idea here. It came directly from him. And that's the word we get, where we get inspiration from or inspired from. So that's why we can trust the Bible. It wasn't man that wrote it. It was man that penned it through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so man was simply writing down everything that the Holy Spirit was communicating through the unique personalities of certain, certain men, using them in their writing style. But ultimately, the author of the word is God. This is what John chapter 1 tells us that the Bible we have before us is not just any book you can rent from the library. It's not a book that you can buy at the store. This is the living and active Word of God. That means the pages literally are words coming from God's heart to your very own. And that's how we can know we can trust it. So thank you for your question, Anonymous. Let's go back to our phone lines. Matthew from Cibolo, you're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ken, how you doing? Hi, Matthew. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing Okay, great. I was uh, actually uh, reading, and I read this so many times, every night I read the Bible to the kids. And I was reading uh, to my three-year-old, and we're reading a story about Rahab, right? And it was, it was children and children's verbiage, but it had me thinking, you know, and Rahab lied about the spies. Or lied, or lied to um, for the spies to kind of get away. We all know the story, but I was curious. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, I know the Lord doesn't never want us to lie, even white lies, or embellish the truth, or not forthcoming those things. But they were ultimately uh, the spies were able to do uh, what they needed to do. You know, through God's message. So I was curious to know. And we kind of, my wife and I were talking about this. So I was like, well, you know. God turns all bad to good, so he, she lied. Was there a purpose for, you know, for, or how did God change that? Or I don't say how, but why, or did God allow this to just 
transformed through the line, you know, and uh, the spies were able to get away. And so ultimately something good came out of that. And that's one part. And the second part was um, from the message. By the way, your message was so wonderful on Sunday, so thank you for that. I was going to ask you um, from a practical standpoint on verse verse 7, it says to, therefore, do not be partners with them. And Obviously, there's a message before that. If you can expound on verse 7 and then expound on the Rahab situation. Thank you, Pastor Ken. I really love Absolutely. you. Love you too, Matthew. It's good to hear from you. So let me take the question about Rahab first. Uh, you know, here's a common misunderstanding that I hope to make absolutely clear. Rahab is listed in the the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, not because of her lie. She's listed there in spite of her lie. So so it she wasn't a person recognized for her faith because of her lie. Her lie was actually a demonstration of weak faith. She didn't have to lie. Now, God still used it, just like you said. So to your question, did God need for her to lie? No, no, he didn't. He didn't need for th- That essentially is the question, the, the, the root of it. God didn't need her to lie. And, but God was still able to take something and use it for good. Now, what would have happened, how it would have happened, we don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us. It's sort of like, you know, the son of perdition being prophesied uh, in the poetic books about uh, Judas Iscariot. Well, what if he didn't pay the 30 pieces of silver? What would have happened? You know, we, we don't know. We don't know. But we do know that when God says that we shouldn't lie, that lying is a sin, then it means it's always a sin, no matter what. Is there forgiveness for it? Of course there is. But we don't need to lie or compromise in order for God to accomplish his will. That's, that, that, I hope, is clear. How it'll happen, we don't need to know that. Our responsibility is to walk by faith, to trust in his word, and to trust in the character and nature of Jesus Christ, and how he's going to make things work out is up to him. But he doesn't need us to compromise. He doesn't need us to sin in order for him to do what he wants to do. So that's the story about Rahab in, in, from Judges chapter 2. She's in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, in spite of her lie, not because of it. Now, your second question is about uh, the study on Sunday. So let me read the, the just the verse right before, because this is where we can understand what Paul the Apostle means. Ephesians chapter 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And I I said this on Sunday, and I'll reiterate it again here today. Paul could not be any more clearer. What he is saying is, in the previous verses, he's saying there is a clear distinction between those who walk in darkness and those who walk in the light. And you can tell by the way they live their lives. Not by what they say, but by the way they live their lives. Once you notice the distinction between the two, recognize, recognize who you are. And get your heart right with the Lord. Now, if you are partnering with somebody, whether it's a relationship or you have a loved one or a friendship, um, unless you're already married to them, you shouldn't be in a relationship with them. I tell people often, and I tell them in their face during premarital counseling, if one is unwilling to follow the Lord and the other one is, you should not be together. He does not love you or she does not love you no matter what they say. They may love you with a worldly kind of love. But Paul here tells us 
now that you can see the difference between walking in darkness and walking in the light, you who are walking in the light, don't even think about being partners with them. It will not end well. And, and I know that's difficult to hear. We have heard every single excuse, but ultimately it comes down to the fact that this is what God's Word says. He warns us because He loves us. And I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've sat in afterwards where they didn't take the counsel and they've regretted it. And they're their hearts are hurting because now they're married. They can't just quit because they're not a nice person. And so that's what Paul is writing to here. Therefore, do not be partners with anyone that is in darkness if you are walking in the light. He does that. God does that. He warns us because he loves us. Well, you can hear the music. That means the first half here of the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life is now complete. We will have a two-minute break, and I'll be right back. I'll see you then. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the tuesday edition of the word to stand on for life my name is pastor ken and if you're just tuning in i'm filling in today for pastor ron who is still underneath under the weather, so you can keep him in your prayers. His, uh, his, his voice just isn't 100%, and he doesn't want to be a distraction. And so our show will continue as usual. Quickly, let me give you the phone numbers, and we'll get right to some questions that were just submitted, including an update on one that was uh, related to the first half. 210 that's 210-340-9585. That's the local number. Toll-free number is 877-630-5757. 877-630-5757. Uh, so Alan called in the first half, and he was asking about uh, Spanish Bibles in giant print. And somebody had replied from the church, had replied and sent us an email with the information and to where you can get one. So, Alan, if you're listening and you need that information on where you can find a giant print Spanish Bible, go ahead and contact the church, and we will put you in touch or give you the information that you're looking for to get the giant print Spanish Bible. Back to our email inbox. This one is from J.R. Pastor Ron, Paul wrote to Timothy twice. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, about a man named Alexander. I was able to find the name about six times in a concordance, but no actual facts other than Paul saying he had done him harm. Do you know anything about the history of this man or his interactions with Paul? J.R., I can help. And so one of the things we need to remember, uh, in the Bible, there are certain names that were common names, which meant that whenever we see the name, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same person. Mary, for example, was a common name. Um, even a Jesus would be a, sort of a common name. Uh, and Alexander would be a common Greek name. It's one of those uh, cases where, you're right, uh, the concordance would show that Alexander appears a multitude of times, uh, five, maybe six, but each one of them, they don't all point to the same Alexander. Now, the two passages you pointed to here, 
pardon me. The two passages you pointed to here from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 4 are probably not the same Alexander. Because if you read in the context uh, of them, they're both different. Um, there's another Alexander in, in, in Acts chapter 19. Um, there, there is, uh, who is probably a different one. And so to these specific cases, um, Alexander in, in, well, you know, Alexander was a silversmith who wanted to cause harm in Acts chapter 19, right? That one we know about. Alexander here in chapter 20, I'm sorry, uh, uh, chapter 2 of Second Timothy is, is one that uh, is not the same because if you look at First Timothy, um, he's talking about, in context, about a, a disciple or somebody that seemed to at some point started to walk into faith and it had fallen away, uh, him and another man named Hymenius. And they had disregarded or they had uh, forsaken the faith. And, and so the indication there is that they had uh, gone a divergent path. Whereas in Second Timothy, uh, the Alexander there is one that doesn't sound like was everyone interested in following. And so that's really all we have. And there may be other Alexanders, because I said that there are five that I could think of, maybe six, uh, but they don't all point to the same person. So not much is known. Again, a common name, J.R., not much is known. Uh, maybe the one in Acts, we know that he, the silversmith, was one that was adamantly against the ministry of Paul. Um, the one also, I think, in First Timothy was referencing an Alexander from uh, Ephesus. But again, I think that's a different person. Common name. Now, thank you for your question, J.R., Next question is from Anonymous. Is there any value in reading the Apocrypha? Hmm. Well, it depends on what you define as value. Uh, overall value, sure, there's, there's historical value there. You know, the Apocrypha, to be clear, the Apocrypha, the 15 or 16 books that are um, intertestamental, if you will, they are, in some Bibles, uh, included in this area between the Old and New Testament. But the truth is they're not inspired. These are not part of the inspired canon of Scripture. Uh, they, they might have been included in some earlier uh, manuscripts. Some uh, copies of the Septuagint may, may have the apocryphal books, but... They are not inspired because the doctrine included in those books uh, contradicts that which we know to already be true. Uh, there are inconsistencies in the books. Now, is there value to them? Sure, there could be value to them, especially if you're a history buff. You know, that the intertestamental period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament is what is often referred to as 400 years of silence. And the reason why it's called that is because God didn't speak to his people for 400 years. But in the, the course of time, during those 400 years, there were a lot of things that still went on. If you look at the end of the Old Testament, chronologically, you're probably at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And prophetically, you're there at, at Malachi contemporaries that would bring us right about at the end chronologically of the Old Testament period. But after that time, during those 400 years when John the Baptist would appear at the Jordan, uh, there was, uh, well, actually, no, I, I take that back. When, when, uh, when John the Baptist, when, I'm sorry, when Elizabeth was pregnant, and that, that's when we hear God starting to speak again. But in that period, even if God was silent, there was a lot going on. If you look at the sort of the religious structure of Israel in the New Testament, 
and what Judaism looked like, it, it's completely different than what you see at the end of the Old Testament. Well, over the course of these 400 years, certain evolutions of Judaism started to develop and and roles like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, and these roles were created as uh, the, the Judaism developed. Uh, none of that is documented in the Bible, but it is in some of these historical books. Uh, you read about this in the, the, the revolt of the Maccabees and, all, and, and other historical books included in the Apocrypha, but that's the value. Nothing inspired as the Word of God, but uh, maybe could provide some supplemental historical help, especially if you're interested in history and the backdrop behind uh, what we see in the New Testament and, and Judaism as it's portrayed there. And that's the best that I could offer. In terms of hearing from God, you stick to the 66 books in the canon of Scripture, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New. These 66 books comprise what we call uh, the Word of God today. Next question is from Christopher. Uh, What does Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 mean? When it says that Jesus emptied himself, if he was still God, then why did he give up? Interesting choice of words here, Christopher. Um, So Philippians chapter 2. Let me explain this just real quickly for anyone that's not familiar. Philippians chapter 2 is the section of Scripture that we really see the heart of what Jesus did as the Son of God and God the Son. Specifically, it is a demonstration of his humility because what he did, being eternal God, he condescended himself. Jesus condescended himself by lowering himself to be a humble human to take on the form of a slave not 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 an earthly authority like a king but he became a slave and in the sense the word here emptied is is literally he made himself nothing this is the way the niv translates it he made himself nothing he emptied himself of his godly right is rights that come with deity that belong to him he didn't stop becoming god but he temporarily put aside the privileges that come with being god so that he could humble himself lower himself to become one of us so yes he was still god but what he gave up was uh, the the right to call upon legions of angels to minister and accomplish his will. To he 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 gave up his right to carry out judgment on those that were persecuting him, even if he had every right to do so. But he willingly gave those things up so that he could humble himself to live a perfect life. In fact, I talked about this last night in our men's Bible study. One of the most encouraging things that come from Hebrews chapter 4 at the end is Jesus is our great high priest. And, and what that entails is that we don't have a high priest that is earthly or just human in nature like the Jews did. But our great high priest is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That's exactly what Philippians 2 is about. He humbled himself. He humbled himself so that he could feel what we feel. And so, having done all that, he still did not sin. And that's why Philippians chapter 2 is so important for us. He emptied himself of his right, his privilege to exercise his deity, even if he was still God. 
And that's the reason why he he did that is because he loves us, Christopher. If you put your faith in him, and you can be born again if you're not already. It's interesting, too, because that's the last thing I'll say about this, and then we'll move on. We, When Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River, John didn't want to do it, but he said, no, you got to do it. May it be so according to what is promised that it would be fulfilled. What, what would be fulfilled? That he would identify with sinful man. And publicly being baptized, there was nothing that he needed to repent of. But he was publicly being baptized so that he could identify with you and me. So thank you for your question, Christopher. That's a good one. We have a question that's called in from Anonymous. Anonymous asks, after atheists die, do they keep the same body or take on a different form? You know, Anonymous, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly whether or not they whether or not they keep the same body or they take on a different form. But what we do know this, it won't be the exact same body because these bodies are not meant to last forever. Believer or unbeliever, we are going to spend eternity somewhere. For those of us that are born again, we will enter into our glorified bodies where there is no sickness, no sin, no pain, to forever serve Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. But eight, uh, but those that die apart from Christ will be in a body that will suffer eternally. And, and you know, with the place where there is gnashing of teeth and blackest darkness is reserved for them, indicating, and Jesus himself said, this will be in a place of eternal punishment. And in order for there to be eternal punishment, the body, whatever that body is that unbelievers occupy, is going to have to last. They'll want to die, but their body won't. So what that form looks like, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It won't be the exact same body again, so these bodies of flesh will pass away. They're not meant to last forever. You know, there is a there is something interesting about this too because whatever form they show up in, again, body probably a body similar to what they currently have. There in Revelation chapter 20 when the great white throne of judgment takes place whatever body they're in that will endure punishment for eternity, that's the body they'll be in as they stand for judgment at the great white throne. And then right after that judgment, they'll be cast into the lake of fire with the angel and his, with the devil and his demons. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it breaks my heart because I think of people in my life, and you in the radio audience have the same thing, and people in your life who who are good people. They're kind, they're friendly, they pay their taxes, they don't cheat, but they don't know Jesus. And that should break our hearts. I don't want them to stand at the great white throne. I don't want them to be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus says they they almost literally have to step over his dead body so that they could face eternal punishment. Now, we can't make anybody or force anybody to believe. But for us who are believers, our hearts should always be tender, not calloused, but tender and broken. When people we love 
are getting close to the end of their life and they still are not born again. Anonymous, thank you for submitting your question. Let's go back to our phone line. Oh, nobody on the phone line here. 210-340-9585. If you want to call in, 877-630-5757. That's the toll-free number. We do have, oh, just a few more minutes if, in case you do want to call in. Next question is from Ryan. Did God die for all sins except for the sin of unbelief? Ryan, uh, yes. The way you phrase it is a little bit different, but yes. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he effectively died for all sin, for all mankind, from Adam to the end of time, till Jesus comes. Every sin that has been committed or will be committed, Jesus' death on the cross was enough to cover, to pay for our sin. And so he died for all sin except what Jesus talks about, the one sin that is unpardonable, the unforgivable sin from Matthew chapter 12. There is one sin that can't be forgiven, and that's what you call the sin of unbelief. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply not believing in Jesus. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, then our sin is forgiven. It is. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 tells us that not only is our sin forgiven, but it's never to be brought up anymore. But if there is someone who rejects the offer of salvation, they are committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to John chapter 16, is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But if that conviction is refused by a hardened heart, then there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's the one sin that can't be forgiven. It's the sin, what you call the sin of unbelief, the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, whatever you want to call it. It's not believing in Jesus Christ. So, Ryan, thank you for your question. We are just inside. We're about three minutes in, so I don't have any more time for phone calls. Um, I do have time for one more question. Anonymous. Uh, the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. However, Galatians tells us that if you live like the world, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If someone is saved and repents but continues to sin normally, then what happens to a person like this? Uh, I actually talked about this on Sunday, very straight to the point. Uh, anyone who lives a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is not saved. A person who is saved will repent of their sin. It's as simple as that. The Apostle John would write in the second epistle, of those who left meaning they left the faith or they left the group. He said, those who left, they left because they were never of us. In other words, they might have given the appearance of being saved at some point, but they show their true colors that they're not. And so God doesn't give us the, the, the ability to look into people's hearts to see whether or not they really are saved. He knows. But we look at their fruit. And if a person acts like an unbeliever, we treat them as an unbeliever, no matter what they say. If a person acts like a believer and there's fruit that's evident in their life, I don't know if they're pretending. It's not for me to judge. I can't see their heart, but I can go by the fruit. And if the fruit looks like they truly have been born again, well, then I treat them as somebody who has truly been born again. Could I be fooled? Sure, we can be fooled. That's why the Bible does teach that if you truly are saved, you will always be saved. 
And if you look like you're saved, but later on show that you really aren't, then you never were. And that's the easiest way that I could explain it anonymous. You know, I think this the important thing about this is that when John is writing, he's not writing so that we can go and examine other people's hearts. God tells us that we can examine our own heart. We should examine our own hearts to see whether or not we're in the faith. You know, Paul would write to the, the Corinthians to examine ourselves. He's saying that don't worry about somebody else, whether or not they're saved. Worry about yourself. Does your life demonstrate someone that has truly been changed by Jesus Christ? If so, then you really are saved. If you have a loved one, a friend, or a wayward child, or somebody that has once professed their faith and walked away, well, continue to pray for them. Pray for them. And if they really are saved, then they'll come back to the Lord. Anonymous, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. You can hear the music that brings us here to the end of the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado. It's been my pleasure to fill in. The show will continue tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Until then, we'll see you. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.